Hi everyone, this is Alireza Sierra from Paytech Talk. This is a new episode, episode number 75 it should be. Today I have two guest speakers with me. I have on my right side Henry sitting here next to me in Frankfurt and we have also Gökhan. Uh, today we will talk about stablecoins and CBDCs and I would like to uh, yeah, ask you to introduce yourself. Maybe we start with you, Henry. Explain a little bit to the listeners, what are you doing? Uh, with whom are you working? What is your company? And what are you doing in respect to um, yeah, Euro token, Euro money token, stable coins? And what is, what is uh, your, your understanding of this topic? Okay, so yeah, first of all, thank you very much for the kind invitation. My name is uh, Henry de Jong. I'm uh, one of Quantos uh, co-founders and responsible for the business development. Uh, Quantos was founded in 2015. And from the beginning on, we always focused on connecting traditional financial infrastructure with public and private blockchains. And as such, we uh, built uh, in, the, in the early days of blockchain, I would say, uh, already with uh, bringing uh, fiat money on the blockchain and uh, as such I'm uh, involved with uh, or with uh, discussions about uh, stable coins uh, for quite a long time and uh, as Quantos we already launched uh, back in 2019 together with uh, Bankfreak from uh, Liechtenstein and auditing company uh, BDO a uh, stable coin as a service but I guess um, I'll hand over to uh, Google now and uh, I'll talk more about that later. Yeah, thank you for all having today the talk with you guys and for your invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, my name is Gökhan Nazanin. I'm the Vice President for Business Development at FIS in Europe for all banking solutions which we provide there. Maybe some warm words about FIS. FIS, I would say, is one of the oldest fintechs out there, which offers a huge bundle of solutions for financial institutions, but also corporates since more than 50 years, and especially about the digital and the crypto business, we're one of the leading institutions, which for instance, uh, works with many crypto platforms out there since years. Uh, we're doing nearly all the acquiring for every huge crypto platform over there with our WorldPay business unit, which is the global biggest uh, acquirer in the payments domain. On the other side, we partnered already last year with NYDIG in the US to allow banking clients, which are banks which use our core banking system to integrate NYDIG to enable banking clients to buy Bitcoin over their accounts. And currently we're also discussing with many central banks out there how we can generate a kind of sandbox for giving those guys the, the, the chance and enablement to you to make use cases for CBDCs and giving them also some use cases and work together with a kind of um, real time uh, clearing house uh, together and then have some couple of workshops with them and see where the journey goes with all the CBDCs, stable coins and whatever the beautiful world of digital assets can bring us. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Gökhan. I think we have today also a big uh, Dutch influence. I mean, Henry, you're, you're from the Netherlands and Quantos has some footprint in the Netherlands and also FIS uh, has a very strong footprint, uh, footprint in the Netherlands. So, and therefore we also do not only talk to the German listeners, but hopefully to the international listeners. 
And so we, we want to talk today a little bit about stable coins as said and about CBDCs uh, from a practical experience, from a practical point of view, but also from a legal point of view. So I would like to, to add a little bit information to the regulatory and legal background of um, stable coins and CBDCs. But I would also like to discuss with you what is currently happening in the market, because when we talk about stable coins, um, it is not just uh, positive uh, feedback we get from the market. So maybe let's really talk about uh, the, the, the elephant in the closet or the, like the skeleton in the closet, the algorithmic stable coins. So what, what is an algorithmic stable coin for those who do not really know what an algorithmic stable coin is? Who wants to take this one? Uh, Henry Gökhan, can you explain a little bit what is an algorithmic stablecoin and maybe uh, in, in, in the opposite and difference to a really backed stablecoin, a euro backed or dollar backed stablecoin? Well, maybe, maybe and, the easiest way to explain what um, uh, algorithmic stablecoins stable are is to start with uh, asset backed stablecoins. So, um, uh, I think that asset-backed uh, stablecoins, the ones we know, are the ones that are uh, either backed by uh, fiat money, like euros, dollars, British pounds, or uh, by precious metals like uh, silver or gold. Yeah. So if there are, let's say, uh, 1,000 uh, euro tokens in circulation, there must be somewhere 1,000 euros on a, a trusted bank account. Um, so that's that's pretty clear, and this is something that also can be audited uh, quite easily. The problem with algorithmic uh, stablecoins is that um, these stablecoins are backed by maybe a basket of uh, cryptocurrencies and uh, maybe uh, 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 options or futures on cryptocurrencies. And uh, these algorithms uh, have a kind of leverage but unfortunately in both directions. Yeah? So if the crypto market does well, the uh, value or the value backing the stable coins in circulation is well higher than, uh, than the one-to-one uh, -one pairing. But the problem with, uh, well, the leverage, uh, the double leverage uh, going down is uh, that you uh, can reach a uh, moment that the um, algorithmic stable points are no longer backed um, by their intrinsic uh, value. And then you run into uh, problems uh, like we have seen uh, with the Terra Luna uh, stable coin uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, th thank you, Henry, for this explanation. I think it's very important to understand that stable coins could be still stable, as the name is say saying it, but it really depends how it is backed and how it is structured. And um, so uh, looking over to you, Gökhan, uh, I, I would say like you as a representative of the market and of the maybe big institutional players, uh, would you say an algorithmic stablecoin or stablecoin itself is something needed in the market? Are you, are you pro-algorithmic stablecoin or against it? And what is your, what is your opinion? Neither nor. I, I think the mixture of different varieties of stable coins is pretty interesting, especially for corporate investors, you know. Um, it depends also on the, on the appetite of the risk an institution has when doing investments for their investors, you know. Um, when you have the conservative guys, which you mainly have in Central Europe, just look at the Germans, for instance, who don't maybe are the most risky guys out there, 
um, they would maybe prefer a kind of uh, asset-backed uh, stablecoin, which is mainly backed by gold. Because I guess there are hundreds of stable coins out there, you know, uh, which different varieties and depends on the assets there. And I guess the variety, it's, it's like a portfolio of, of stocks, you know, where you also have a kind of mixture. And depending on the appetite of your risk level, depends on if you have an algorithm or if you have an asset back or something else like the U.S. theater, for instance, which sometimes is also backed by, by U.S. bonds or something else there. So it's totally up to the institution or even to the investors out there. So that's maybe how interesting it could be about new ways of how to structure, for instance, new ETFs depending with, with, uh, with stable coins, you know, because you know that since the, the pandemic, especially the retail investor or the, the, the amount of retail investors increased incrementally. And, and now it's up to the institutions how they bundle packages or new ETFs or something else for the different appetite of the investors out there. Okay, so it really depends on the user and the use case. Uh, so I would agree to that. Um, so looking from your perspective, would you say for, for, for the projects you are involved, would you prefer to have a stable coin, like a privately issued coin, or would you prefer to say, uh, let's take a uh, state-owned coin, like a, a CBDC? Uh, so what, what is your view on, on stable coin versus CBDC? Very interesting question. Um, I guess the problem with the CBDCs, besides the Bahamas with their cent dollar, there is no existing CBDC out there. It's purely just, you know, um, some proof of concepts or even some research stage. So therefore we would start with a stable coin out there. But again, I guess it depends on also educating the investors into that new type of business. And the CBDC, of course, would help much more an institution to educate people besides the stable coins. As I mentioned earlier, there are different varieties of stable coins. And maybe the, the average Joe out there who's maybe just doing a kind of a, a saving plan for his investments or her investments doesn't understand the differences between an algorithm or asset backed like gold or maybe a, a government backed. Um, stablecoin. So therefore, a CBDC is something which is easy to digest, easy to understand, and could kind of handhold people to educate them through that new asset class. Yeah. So, and when, when we look about, when we look on stablecoins right now. I mean, if I would come from a more conservative side and would say, why do we need tokenized money at all? Why do we need stablecoins? Uh, can't you just take what is already existing and take the existing fiat uh, payment environment, uh, looking also at different cases, maybe looking at clearing and stuff like that. So what would be your argument to, to, be, to say, no, we really need now or in the future stable coins? So what is the benefit of uh, tokenized money, I would call it, rather than sticking to the old fiat payment world, starting with you, Henry, and then coming back to you, Gökhan. So what would you say, Henry? What is the benefit from your perspective uh, to have a, let's say, a euro-backed stablecoin? Yeah. 
So digitized money has so many advantages. It makes money programmable. You have instant settlement and you can do microtransactions at extremely low costs. Yeah? And this is something you cannot um, uh, service with the current payment infrastructure. And uh, I don't see stable coins um, as a um, uh, investment. Yeah. I see it as a, a mean of payment. And uh, since it's, uh, as I said before, programmable instant transactions, you can uh, start offering uh, payments in for whole new industries. Yeah, so the in-game payments, uh, the metaverse, machine-to-machine payments, uh, all kinds of uh, payment schemes that you cannot serve with current payment infrastructure. Thank you, Henry. I, I will add to that later on a little bit my legal point of view and regulatory point of view. And please, Henry Dürkan, you can also ask me questions. It's not supposed to be only me asking questions, but coming to you, Dürkan, because I know that you and your company, you're working on, on, on using, yeah, as you said it, Henry, uh, digital money for, for transactions, maybe also for transactions between central banks. So what is the benefit from your point of view, Gökhan, to have digitized money, be it a stablecoin, be it a CBDC, what is really the benefit? There are different ways. Look, I mean, the, the stuff Henry mentioned there is also for the new world, like the metaverse, you know, but we still have a kind of traditional world. Just think about businesses with trade finance, you know, which was one of the first ideas why we should use the blockchain, you know, to get rid of the middleman. And maybe with all the documents to have clarity and transparency over there you know and now you think about how we can send money within seconds all over the, across the world you know cross-border payments which is an awesome use case think about the the, the people the underbank or the non-bank people out there just give a great example with mpasa in kenya you know many guys are pretty underbanked there they just use their mobile phone as the vehicle to pay to receive money and do all or for their daily living. You know, even the rich or let's say the wealthier people in that country are using it. It's pretty convenient. And now think about many other countries out there because the, the whole world doesn't belong just of the Europeans or maybe the Western world. There are many, many countries out there who don't have a great infrastructure, but everyone has a smartphone. Everyone has a phone out there using a phone using digital payments will help them sending money especially um, the payments which they send maybe to their families when they live abroad and work abroad you know and then sending that money back to their to their uh, families maybe don't get me wrong to the philippines and africa turkey or some other countries there you know um and sending that in, in seconds without paying too much transaction fees because what's what's told today the stuff you're doing you're going to to western union to someone else you know sending money which takes time and even if it's just say 24 hours then you have a, to pay a lot of fees over there you know to think about it, the guy is paying or sending 200 bucks over there to his family and has to pay 50 euros just for the transaction fees so and that is something especially when you tokenize assets and i guess volatility is still a measurement maybe it's also great to understand your view about the volatility and how we can overcome that with contracts and all the other stuff but even if there is a volatility if you do a tra transaction in seconds you don't have the huge risk of volatility over there 
you know, and that is something which you can use, especially which is one of the biggest use cases I see in today's world. And again, I, I think we are still in such an early stage, like we are in 2007 when all of us bought the first iPhone, but we don't have any clue what to do with that stuff. But that thing changed the whole world, how we do our daily business, how we do our banking investments and all the stuff there. And that is exactly the shift of paradigm we are currently in. And we have no real clue what's really going on there within the next three to five to seven years. And currently, I'm afraid I don't have any clue about what could happen when we have the quantum computers around. No? Yeah. yeah. So I think what you, what you both said, we discussed this also a couple of months ago when we had this physical event here in Frankfurt and we three were speaking on a panel. And I remember at that time it was a gentleman from, from uh, Bundesbank and there were some others who were, were very pessimistic or very yeah, conservative thinking when it came to digital money and the need of it. So one point which we discussed is financial inclusion. And what we heard was saying that, yeah, in Germany, we don't need, uh, we don't need, uh, let's say, a stable coin or digital money because everyone can pay cash or pay with its credit card or debit card. Uh, yes, I mean, this, this is true when we look only uh, in, in our borders and, and look only in Germany. But it already starts if you want to do a transaction, like you said, Gökhan. Uh, you said maybe some African jurisdictions, but even if we look, let's say, at Iran or some other jurisdictions, like where they do not have access to the global financial market. Or even think about Ukraine now with the war, you yes, know, the people exactly. who, who fleed from the war and hidden yeah. any single cent in their pockets, but exactly. just had a mobile phone there, you know? Exactly. And I think, I think what I was saying at that time, and I, and I repeat it again, innovation comes for those who are in need and if you are too comfortable like we are in germany and other jurisdictions we will we will, we will yeah, miss it out to to be innovative and we will just see the train passing us and it's going to be too late to jump on that train and as i was just saying if you want to do transaction let's say to iran you cannot do a transaction by transferring it with money because what many people don't know is that you would need to have an access to Target or to SWIFT. And if you do not have an access to Target or to SWIFT, you cannot do any cross-border payment. So the intermediary part, what you already said, Gökhan, this is not needed when we do a payment through crypto because you can do it theoretically peer-to-peer -peer, or you can take some exchange or some payment services provider who does maybe crypto, but you are not dependent on someone who's doing the the, yeah, the, the currency swap, let's say from euro to dollar or from dollar to euro, you don't need that. Uh, as you said, uh, you can do it also faster and cheaper because a peer-to-peer -peer transaction with blockchain is done very quick and the costs are very low. I think these are benefits which are hopefully known in the market and which we just repeated. Uh, you also touched on something, Henry, which is going directly if you use a let's say a smart-based e-money solution, you can add to the e-money some smart contract and then put some triggers there. Let's say if someone receives the money, then something is getting triggered and then some other some, something else happens, so really a smart contract. This is also a benefit. I think th these are benefits we discussed now, um, but um, yeah, 
Do, do you have some questions for me? Yes. Because I, I'm the lawyer here yeah, yeah, sure and I'm, I'm asking the whole time the questions. So is there something which maybe I should touch on where you think the listeners right now would like to understand it? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to ask you something and it's based on my uh, or the Contos uh, experience. So we uh, started with uh, offering the stablecoin as a service, as I said uh, before, and that's a closed loop ecosystem. And a closed loop ecosystem can make use of the uh, exemptions in the uh, PSD2. And uh, since you're the lawyer, maybe you could uh, explain a bit what, uh, what an exemption on PSD2 means. And my second question uh, would be, so how stable coins uh, are treated by MIGAR? And yeah. so that's the upcoming re regulation in the uh, crypto market and uh, why um, a stablecoin is treated as a crypto because if it's not treated as a crypto it would not be part of micar yes so that, that, that's that's a good point i mean these are like the really uh, one by ones when it comes to crypto assets i mean for now so currently we do not really have a harmonized regulation of crypto assets uh, for instance we have in germany a regulation for crypto assets which is already there since 2014 so Bitcoin is regulated in Germany as unit of account and as such as a financial instrument under the German Banking Act. But other jurisdictions, most other jurisdictions within the European economic area, uh, cryptocurrencies are not regulated. However, if you have a payment token and the payment token uh, would maybe not fall un any longer under a pure crypto asset, but maybe an e-money instrument. So e-money regulation we have. And if this would be the case, if your payment token is uh, considered to be an e-money instrument, you would usually need to have a license under the e-money regulation. However, under the European e-money regulation, we also have exemptions. We have two exemptions which are well known. One is called limited range. And the second one is called limited network. So limited network actually means that your, your instrument is accepted by third parties. Therefore, it could be e-money. However, the third parties, they're in a limited network. Uh, I can give you an example of uh, e-money instruments which are limited network, accepted like miles and more, payback points, or also in Germany, or maybe also in Netherlands, you know it, we have this um, tanking card with which you go and do tanking. So all of them have in common that you that the acceptance of these instruments is limited to a network of participants which are small by number but also by geography, which means they're either you can either use the card only in your city or in your jurisdiction, but not in let's say you issue it in Germany and then can use it in Austria. This would be not allowed. Uh, then you would fall outside the exemption. Um, for example, Payback has, I think, more than 65,000 acceptance points, exactly. yeah. but they're all in Germany, so this is important. Yeah. Um, and this is the limited network exemption, and we have also the limited range. Limited range means that your payment instrument is only usable for a specific product, like this tanking card. You can only do tanking your car, but you cannot use the card for anything else. And if you fall with, within these two exemptions, then um, you're not regulated. So, and this is something which people can make use of right now. I have a couple of clients with whom I did such products uh, and, uh, and it, it works out quite well, but they are limited as the, as the name says. 
So, but this all is going to change once we're going to have the markets and crypto assets regulation, which is giving an, uh, yeah, an EU regulatory framework for crypto assets. And the crypto asset definition is very broad. So crypto asset is anything which has a, a value which is stored or transferred with the DLT and accepted by third parties. And then you have it called a crypto asset. And then the, the, the Mika regulation um, would, would trigger. But with, within the Mika, we differentiate between crypto assets, which are pure crypto assets, such as utility token, and those which are stable coins. And stable coins are e-money token or asset reference token. And depending on which category of crypto asset you have, a normal, I would, I would call it a normal crypto asset, which is a utility token or a normal cryptocurrency, or you have a stable coin, different set of rules apply. And in a nutshell saying, the rules for stable coins are much more tough. Uh, they are stronger. Plus, once we're going to have the Mika, it doesn't mean only the Mika applies. At the same time, e-money regulation can apply. So then you're going to have both Mika applying and e-money regulation. And therefore, this makes it then maybe for an issuer or for someone like a crypto asset service provider who is uh, providing services in relation to a stable coin, makes it more difficult to comply with the Mika rules and in parallel to the e-money rules. Um, does that make, make sense what I'm talking now? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah, I have a question. The, the thing is, the Mika is a more about the European regulation for assets in crypto. But what about when I'm doing business, let's say in the Middle East, you know, and they have different crypto or stable coins over there, which is not regulated by the Mika or it is generally not that yet. But of course, in different platforms, we can exchange the cryptos with each other. So how we can secure the business, especially when we do trade finance or businesses cross borders and do that payment with different types of assets, where it gets exchanged to each other in different platforms, how we can ensure and secure the business with different regulations. Because on the one side, you have the Middle East stuff, you know, on the other side, you have the Mika, which is more applicable for the European, let's say, uh, business zone, I would call it like this uh, for now, but how we can enable or maybe secure the business with that different regions. Yeah, so that's a very good point. I mean, we're doing it now step by step. So far, we do not have harmonization within the European economic area. And once we're going to have the Mika, those who issue a token have to be registered, have to be present within the European economic area, and they have to um, comply with the rules. And one rule, which is very important, that you would need to have for each of your token which you issue is so-called white paper. And you have to provide this white paper to the regulator and you get you have to notify the regulator of this white paper and get clearance before you're allowed to issue your token and publicly offering it to the European economic area. Plus the second thing, which is very important, all regulated players within the European economic area, such as crypto exchanges, are only allowed to accept and trade um, coins or token where we have a white paper, which is accepted within the European economic area. So giving you an example, let's say we have someone who is issuing uh, a US dollar stable coin and this issuer is located outside of the European economic area. Um, so this person could not uh, have a white paper being accepted by a regulator within Europe because 
this issue is not within the European economic area. So what would it mean for the participants? The participants could maybe buy it, but then only buy it uh, and trade it outside of the European economic area, meaning that they can buy it, let's say, a crypto exchange such as Kraken, which is also outside of the European economic area, uh, but not any longer within Europe. And this is this is tricky. I mean, this is tricky from both perspectives. From one perspective, the user, because the user cannot really do anything with stable counter e-money solutions, which are issued outside of, of uh, Europe. Plus, it is also risky or tricky because we do not have oversight and we do not really cover such instruments. So we will have a situation which is going to be tough. I mean, tough, not just for the retail players, but also for the institutional players. And, and this is something I don't know how to solve it right now, because we cannot just say that the Mika should also apply to other jurisdictions. But what is usually working with classical security products, we have uh, an acceptance regime, which means we could with the European Union have an um, understanding with, let's say, the US or with UK, or let's say with Dubai or the Emirates, to say that we accept all products and instruments which are somehow regulated in other jurisdictions, and they accept those instruments which are regulated in Europe. Maybe it's going in that direction. Okay, got it. It's still early stage, like you mentioned, you know. Um, yeah. But this would, of course, require that those instruments are similar regulated as in Europe. Otherwise, we would put the, the European market participants in danger. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of a risk-based approach when it comes to regulation. I don't like to have instruments regulated only because they're innovative, only because they're on the DLT or blockchain. But on the other side, uh, as we can see with scams and all of these uh, things which happen nowadays, but not just scams. I mean, let's say the Luna or the Terra incident was not a scam, but it was a, or it is an algorithmic stable coins where others, those who really wanted to make use of it, had the possibility to, to attack it. And they did it in a certain way that the whole market around Luna and Terra and all participants got at risk. And I believe if you would have, have regulation in place which would ask for really a stable coin with reserves and to provide proof, like you said it, Henry, have an audit on that, have an audit maybe on the, uh, what do you, what do they take then, algorithmic stable coin, like on the protocols and formulas they yeah. use, yeah. But, but the problem with these algorithms is uh, uh, how, how stable are these uh, algorithms, yeah, so you know, what happens when a, uh, when there is a black swan event? Yeah, so it uh, it it can happen. Yeah, and you don't you don't know how these type of algorithms will will behave. Yeah, that, yeah and the and the other market players. Yeah, that, that, that's one point. That's that's true. Um, and therefore, I mean, the Mika, it's going to be effective. It was supposed to become effective by the end of this year. But I think we have we can face a delay, so it will become most likely effective by uh, the first quarter 2023. But then we're going to have an 18 months um, transition period where all the participants can work in the best way to comply with the Mika. But then let's say after that we have 18 months, which we are going to be in like an August 2024. At that time, we would need to have really some 
some good set of rules and a framework, not just for Europe, but for the global, global payment industry on how to deal with crypto assets. I mean, we're now talking the whole time about stable coins, but it's going to be the same with the CBDC. I mean, we're going to have a, like a Euro CBDC and then we have a US dollar CBDC and then we have maybe a Chinese CBDC. So in a Japanese CBDC, so how to interact there? I mean, which blockchain standard or if it's blockchain, maybe it's only DLT it's supposed to be used. Is it public? Is it permitted? How to do the transfer of, let's say, the Euro stablecoin to the US market and stuff like that? How to do the clearing? I think these are tricky points. I mean, I'm just a lawyer, but looking at you, Henry and Gürkamp, would you, would you yeah, agree to me to say that this is also something which needs to be harmonized, not just the law, but also the technology? I guess the technology, yes, you need, it's it's like being on the road, you know, you, you need to have the same road to drive from A to B. But I guess the great stuff or the easiest stuff with the, the CBDCs will be, it could be traded like the currencies and you already have some regulations for trading and exchanging currencies today. So therefore, let's say the basement, the fundaments, it's already given, you know, it's just how we can build up it for the CBDCs properly. That is that is a difference over there. I wouldn't compare it for for the cryptos or the, the the stable coins which we discussed previously. So there is already a framework within the central banks out there, and they do the business since decades and ages, you know. And I guess it's pretty easier for those guys to build on that given framework for the CBDCs. Of course, again, we have to to see the final versions of the CBDCs, and, and that is maybe also a question to you afterwards um, about how it makes sense or how the usage of CBDCs makes sense, especially for us here in Central Europe, as maybe you remember that we have the gentleman from the Bundesbank who told us that there will be no cap for the corporates in, in the usage of CBDCs for transactions. And maybe there will be a cap for, for uh, the retail guys like us, you know, the private persons. So therefore, that is maybe something we can discuss afterwards. But maybe back to you. Henry, about what you think about CBDCs and the technology over there? Yeah, I, I think it will take a very long time before uh, central banks will start really issuing their CBDCs. If you look back, what happened over the past 10 years with DLT? It's a huge innovation. Yeah? And there was no institutional innovation. Look at the Bitcoin protocol or Ethereum or Algorand, Stellar and all the other uh, DLTs that are on the market. It's it's open source, it's uh, robust uh, software, and it came from a community. And it, I think it will take a very long time before any of the central banks in this uh, world uh, reach that level of innovation. Yeah, so I, I think you, you both are absolutely right. And just to give a couple of examples, why I think it will take some time for the governments to come with CBDCs, which are not just working, let's say, in Germany, but also outside of Germany. Uh, one example is the, the the messaging or the communication between this, these two shikshans. I mean, right now we have SWIFT, SWIFT for fiat money, and this whole SWIFT communication is is a, like <laughs> a Bible by itself because uh, it's very complicated. And um, then to see how this could be applied to crypto, uh, what kind of communication we would have there. Then we talk about uh, the, the, the clearing itself, the classical clearing. 
is it needed, is it useful, or is it required for, for let's say, a Euro CBDC versus a US dollar CBDC? Then we have this whole um, topic around uh, KYC and AML uh, and CFT. So how would we need to have this being uh, harmonized to be able to say, okay, you have KYC the user in, let's say, Japan, and you can then transfer the coin to some recipient in Europe. Uh, uh, you need to do a, a KYT, so know your uh, transaction uh, is that required. So, and then we come back to what is now known also by the FATF uh, travel rule and travel rule implementation and uh, the problem of sunrise and so on. And all of that, I think, are things which, which makes it very difficult to have um, CBDC environment in the new future. I think that we will see CBDCs around the globe, uh, but it will take time. Uh, I would guess maybe five years, maybe eight years. What do you think? I don't know. If, if you look about the statements that the ECB, for instance, does, you know, um, they would like to be ready to go within the next three to five years. But I guess the problem which we mainly have in Europe is always not being aligned. I mean, look about the the, the, the former Pepsi project, which is now AP, you know, and they still have no alignment over there since since years and years. The only concern I have, especially with us Europeans, is that we have different needs and, and requirements in the different countries. So that could be something, especially also on working on the use cases, I guess. The destiny of all the CBDCs will be baked and based on the use cases, which will then bring the reality to life, you know, and therefore I'm really doubting that statement that they could be ready to go within the next three years, you know, and then I'm also thinking maybe for the next five to seven years, there could be something which we could see as this kind of CBDC out there. Well, the two of you know that I'm uh, very bullish on, uh, on digitized money, and uh, for that reason, uh, Quantos also uh, applied for an, uh, for an e-money license. So, uh, our our goal or our our mission uh, is to uh, develop a, a digital cash for a connected world uh, so solution, um, and yeah, so that will be that will be regulated money, so uh, people and uh, corporates can use, uh, well, digitized money uh, without running in the risks or running into the risks that they currently have when they use maybe uh, tethers or uh, static uh, or st uh, algorithmic uh, stable, stable coins. Yeah, so I think, I think so too. I think that um, CBDCs may take some time, but I, I really think that we will see in the near future, already this year, uh, some good professional, maybe regulated in your case, Quantos, uh, players who issue um, stable coins, which are backed by really some, some fiat currency, let's say Euro, uh, which are audited um, and which could be used uh, in, in not just a closed environment, but in a, in a public environment. Because if you look now at the existing stable coins, the problem you always have is you're coming from the fiat world and you need first to have your crypto on-ramp to get your stable coin to use it in the in the yeah, crypto environment like the exchanges on the DeFi world and then if you want to go back to the fiat world you need your fiat off-ramp and both is very not 
too complicated, but it is complicated enough to make it for the majority of the retail users not usable, but also for the institutional users. They don't want to go to a, a yeah, crypto exchange, register there to be able to buy a stable coin, then to use it and then uh, go there and uh, sell it back to fiat and get their fiat from a payment service provider. It would be good to have one service provider who can do all of that and who can offer its uh, e-money instrument in that case to the uh, entire community, to the crypto and the non-crypto community. So to use it in both worlds, I call it. Uh, is, is that something you you would agree to me? Is that is that a, a good a good solution or a good? I guess uh, we also have some additional tech players. You know, there are, for instance, the digital identity. We know that the, the colleagues of blockchain Helix, for instance, who are providing a service for digital identity. How you you could, for instance, in, in this case, Quantos with the e-money license, using that option also for digital identity. You know, provide a service and then with a tokenized or asset backed token over there you know, and offer them payment services to someone else because that is also how you could maybe overcome the issue with the KYC and, and the monitoring about there because you have already your identity back in the blockchain and I guess using that kind of, of, of technologies will make life easier for us in the near future but again as with everything out there we need always the first brave and bold guys who go out and have the services provide the services until the big guys understand there is a huge value for that. So therefore, go for it, Quantos. But definitely, I mean, the, the point about digital identity is a very important point, which uh, Helix ID is offering, for instance. Uh, and this is also something which the FATF was giving in its publication. So the FATF is not just warning when it comes to crypto. In this case, the FATF gave a recommendation and was really promoting the use of digital identity both for those who, 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 yeah, who provide digital identity, but also for institutions who could use digital identity or a provider who is providing a digital identity fully KYC compliant, and then to leverage that digital identity between institutions rather than having each institution the need to run a new KYC for its customers, which is not anymore up to date. And FATF really gave this recommendation to say, look here, look at the market, get comfortable with the digital identity concept, and then think about how to provide the legal, uh, legal framework of making this happen, that you can provide a digital identity and also later on use that digital identity with all the participants. And this is something which is um, continuing the, the IDAS approach. The IDAS approach already now asks for the qualified uh, digital signature, which could be used as a, a identification uh, instrument for KYC. And with the same logic, you can also do it with digital identity. And I think doing that with a, a crypto instrument or a crypto payment instrument in combination, uh, and maybe with Quantos as a regulated e-money player, uh, this could be a very nice uh, service package for users. Yes, I think that the combination of a digital identity and digital or digitized money uh, is a uh, prerequisite to make the metaverse successful. And because you, the, uh, if you want to bring economy into the metaverse, you have to you have to connect it to the economy we currently have. Yeah, and the bridge is digitizing 
our uh, real-world identity and our fiat money and use that in the metaverse. Yes, I would even say take your crypto wallet and make your crypto wallet become your only wallet for, for everything, for each transaction and also for your identity and for everything. To have one wallet where you have everything inside it and the user can decide what to use, when to use and to really in both worlds, the, yep. the traditional physical world and the metaverse world. So, and using the wallet as a bridge to both worlds. Uh, and I think that um, this uh, DLT uh, makes also life for uh, uh, regulators a lot easier yeah? because they can always uh, see what's happening or what, what happened. Yeah? So um, it's, it's so easy and uh, I don't want to make uh, anyone afraid. But it's, uh, it's, it's so easy to uh, see where the money flows, right? yeah, where, where the comes from. It, um, uh, it, it brings transparency. Yes, you, you're absolutely right. So looking, looking to the time, I would like just to ask you too for your, yeah, your expectation for the future. So what, how would you, what, what is your, what do you think? Is, is the future going to be, a crypto friendly future and something where people really use crypto instruments and uh, what what is your what do you think when we talk about future the next six months 12 months one year two years uh, starting with you will come so, so what do you expect? I, I would make a statement and I'm, i think henry will also agree with that statement about crypto is here to stay of course we will see let's say a kind of cleanup and consolidation of the current crypto landscape over there because you have hundreds and maybe thousands of crypto assets out there and i guess the right to exist is maybe just with the big ones or with the interesting projects because at the end of the day it's also about the use case those assets were built up and we see also now a bigger coloration um, coloration of the bitcoin to the s p 500 for instance you know and the performance of each other so if the s p 500 performs well, you also see a great move from, from the Bitcoin and also in, in the other direction is if the S&P 500 goes down, you also see a move from the Bitcoin goes down as well. So you see already the coloration over there. And so that means also that institutions adapt more and more the big ones out there like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and there are some other projects which are also interesting. So I think the next six months are pretty interesting because currently also giving the current circumstances or let's say the current macroeconomic circumstances we have out there with the war, the inflation and the other stuff and even in the lock, uh, lockdown in China, which is also a huge problem to trade globally. You know, it's not only the war we have here in front of the house, but it's also the stuff which we have in China and, and that the ships are not able to ship again and bring all the goods that the world needs out there. So I, was, I think the next six months are pretty interesting, especially for the stock market, but also for the crypto market. And we will see a kind of cleanup. There will some assets who will maybe disappear forever, like it was already 10 years ago, five years ago, you know. You had always some, some great performers and then they disappeared overnight. And then you had other assets which raised up. And I think um, you will separate the wheat from the chaff after, let's say, the winter time when hopefully the inflation is, is, is captured again as a medium level. 
that I think there will be a second wave of inflation because currently they try to stop the first wave of the inflation with raising the interest. And then I guess that is something uh, which the, the central banks always, always did in the past also. But unfortunately, st- uh, raising interest rates will not always help. And then they start again to print money. And, and then the second wave hits us much harder than the first one. And after then, we will have a kind of recovery. So I guess until then, we will see a, a cleanup, a uh, consolidation of the market. And then you have the real assets, which becomes also uh, for the future. And I think, uh, Henry, over to you with the metaverse, that will be a different level or a playing level field over there with the metaverse. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So uh, I read that we are uh, at the beginning of a uh, crypto winter again. That will take uh, 12 to 36 months. Others predict that, uh, for example, Bitcoin will reach $100,000 this year. So they have uh, six months time still left. Um, so uh, yeah, if it's, if, if it's crypto winter, at the other side, we see the increasing regulation. Yeah, we discussed uh, FATF, the uh, MICAR, and uh, we see regulation in the MENA uh, region. Uh, uh, Europe uh, will be will be harmonized, but regulation also has an advantage. Yeah. So once the play field is defined, um, it means that uh, traditional investors can invest in the instruments. Yeah? So um, I'll, I'll expect that you know, once the winter is over, um, uh, big players will enter or re-enter the market. It was nice final words from both of you gentlemen, uh, but this shouldn't be our final words in general because I hope that we are three going to have, yeah, let's say a couple of more episodes talking because today we talked about stablecoin, about CBDCs, but the whole DeFi industry, staking, yield farming and so on is still there to talk about and I really much enjoyed it with both of you. And uh, as I can see in your faces and you both nodding and and giving me the signal that we're going to continue, I can just tell you listeners, uh, stay tuned. We will have more episodes coming. And as always, you will find under the podcast information on Henry and Gürkan. You can reach out to any of us uh, through the usual uh, channels, social media, and uh, get in touch with us. And uh, we are looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Thank you uh, for those. Have a good one. Bye.